now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Andy Thomas, one of the UK's leading researchers into unexplained mysteries and conspiracy theories. He's a crop circle researcher and has two books on crop circles, Vital Signs, A Complete Guide to the Crop Circle Mystery and Why It Is Not a Hoax, and An Introduction to Crop Circles. Today we'll be talking about the phenomena of crop circles, his new book, New Heretics, and more. Andy, thank you for being my guest and welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. So how did you start investigating crop circles in the first place? So I really drifted into this world by accident. Uh, Back in 1991, I was traveling around in uh, an area called Wiltshire, which is sort of in the southwest of England here. And uh, I now know, but I didn't know then, that it was like a really core place for crop circles to appear. I mean, they do appear in other places too, but you know, really, uh, that's pretty much the centre of it. Uh, And I'd heard of crop circles, like most people, um, but I had no idea how many there were, and I had no idea just how complex and big they were. And when I actually saw some for myself... I was. I had this strange feeling in the pit of my stomach from the first moment I saw one that that this was going to be life changing. I didn't know why, and you know I spent two or three days just trying to see as many crop circles there as I could, um, and I just knew I had to know more. I, there was something so unknown about it. I mean, not one person that I met, and you'd meet a lot of other people looking at them, of course, not one person could tell me what was going on, where they came from. Everybody had their own theory. And I thought, this is just really intriguing. And when I got back home, and I'm in the southeast of England, I started to find out that we we had actually had them even down here, and it's just they don't get talked about so much here. And I started reading. I started to then travel around and see more and meet up with other people. And in the end, um, we formed a crop circle investigation team here in the southeast of England in a county called Sussex. And here I am three decades later. And that search, that quest to try to understand what was going on with these shapes in the field, of course, expanded me over the years to look at lots of other mysteries because you very soon find that Crop circles don't generally get very well represented in the media. They get laughed at, treated as a joke. And that's true of other mysteries. And I realise, well, if crop circles are not being accurately portrayed, what else is not being accurately portrayed? And so as a result, over the years, I've found myself writing and lecturing about all kinds of mysteries and other belief systems and trying to be tolerant of all views within reasonable boundaries uh, if there is some reasonable evidence. But it was the crop circles that really began that for me. And I, I still, to this day, am entranced by them, no matter where they come from. My geography of England is not that great, but is Stonehenge in the southeast or southwest? And are most crop circles being created near Stonehenge? Not quite. So Stonehenge is the famous, the most famous of all our ancient monuments here, of course. Uh, So that is in the southwest, but more sort of central southwest. Um, And yes, you do get crop circles in that area. But interestingly, the main area is another stone circle, which many people believe is actually more spectacular than Stonehenge. It covers a much wider area. uh, And that's at a village called Avebury. And although many of the stones have been removed over the years, there's enough left to see that there was once a massive complex of circles of stones, more than one there. And it would have been certainly one of the most important uh, ancient gathering points. Uh, And that is, in fact, where the majority of crop circles appear. So, yeah, you get them in Stonehenge, but you need to shift up about an hour's drive, really, to get to Avebury. Uh, And it's a very magical place. And for some reason, and we can talk about this, that's where the majority of the crop circles seem to be. Not all of them. There are other hotspots as well. But there's something about that area. And even without the crop circles, there's so many stone circles, burial mounds, ancient places. It has that sort of strange feeling about it anyway. And to have crop circles on top of that, it just adds to the mystique of the whole area. 
Do you think there's any correlation between the hinges and the circles? It's certainly been speculated over the years that there might be a link. I mean, many people believe that there are natural energies in the ground. The word energy is so overused, but okay, let's use that. Some liken these to ley lines and energy lines. They're not always quite the same thing, but energy patterns in the ground. And it's been sort of theorized that ancient man maybe was instinctively aware of where these areas were. They in themselves may well be linked up with underground water. And we know that underground water can generate electrical effects in the ground. So there may be something that binds those together and that perhaps ancient man was much more in tune with their landscape. So they sensed that there was a feeling, there was an energy about a certain place. So they marked these with stones and they marked them because they thought that these were sacred spaces. And of course, if crop circles use the same energies to be created, which some people believe they do, it would then make sense that they appear in more or less the same areas. And often you will get crop circles clustering near ancient sites. And there's yet another theory, which I don't think we can ever prove, but which is that crop circles came down many, many thousands of years ago. And the ancient peoples thought, seeing the circle in the grass or whatever, that the gods had come down and then marked these sites with stones. And that may be then why, again, you got this link. Now, that's only a theory. There's no way of proving that. But one interesting thing, there have been some interesting correlations drawn between the geometry of stone circles and their mathematical layout and crop circles. So that we can never prove that without the time machine. But it is possible that there's more of a link there between the two than we know. It's interesting that you brought up energies because I saw that some crop circles are naturally formed due to magnetic energy in the earth. Is that what you're talking about? Well, I I think that's where the word energy is difficult. We know there are electromagnetic fields in the ground and in, you know, surrounding us in space. So we're surrounded everywhere by electromagnetics. So yes, some believe there is something in the ground, again, connected with the water, but other things as well that has a detectable presence. Now, a scientist would say it doesn't. And this is one of the problems because, yes, there have been tests with electromagnetic detectors, electrostatic meters in crop circles, and people have found interesting things. But what the dowsers say they find using the old arts of rods and pendulums, scientists say, well, they can't detect anything. But the dowsers would say that's because they're trying to come at it in too left brain away. They're not open to seeing that there might be other things in spectrums that perhaps they haven't yet explored. Um, my own feeling is there is something to it. Uh, and I am not really a dowser, but I've certainly seen people detect things that I can't see how they would have known about otherwise. And although I don't think dowsing is 100% fail safe, I think they're tuning into something. I think everything in existence probably on some level has an energy field about it. But I mean, just one other thing we should mention, I mentioned the correlation between water and natural energy fields, which is known about. And certainly if you map out where the majority of crop circles have occurred, you'll find that they are appearing on the areas where you get the most underground water. And here in England, the the best of what we call an aquifer, so that word aquifer is any rock that carries lots of water, is on strata called chalk. And if you look at the patterns of chalk and then you map out all the crop circles, you find there's an absolute link between the two because there's plenty of places outside of those areas full of fields and they don't get crop circles or not very often. And yet again and again, they're coming back to these areas of underground water. And I think for me, that is another reason why I think there's more to this than just people crunching about with bits of wood and garden rollers, which is what the newspapers always say. Because if it is all a big hoax, you could make them anywhere you wanted. And yet that's not how it works. There's something either drawing these things in or generating them that I think has a geophysical connection and lots of other people do too. Yeah, it's good that you mentioned the rope and the and the boards because some of them to me look obviously like, uh, you know, some guys could go out at night and make these, but some of them are so elaborate. You, you think, how could they have done this in the middle of the night? 
for sure. I mean, look, I mean, everybody accepts in the crop circle research world, some are man-made. I mean, there have been people who try to copy them and they make them for TV. And some have got ambitious and you've got to take your hat off to them. Yes, there's an artistry involved there. But, yeah, you look at what they create and especially you look at how long it takes them to make. And some people are taking a whole day, sometimes more than a whole day, to make something that's nowhere near as large and as complex as some of the other ones we've had, often which have occurred in very short periods of time. I mean, we've had crop circles appear by daylight. They don't all appear by night. That That is a myth. Some do, yes, but some occur by day in very short periods of time where we know when the field was empty, we know when a crop circle appeared, and you realise sometimes you've got less than an hour in which to create it, and yet some man-made formations, many of them are taking nine, ten hours for a team of people to construct. And as you say, then you imagine doing that in a pitch-dark field at night where you can't use any torches, even if you're using some kind of infrared goggles, you know, it's going to be tricky to move around and be accurate. Uh, and, yeah, and that's when you then start to realise what's involved. And if anybody, you know, wants to try something quite interesting, find some of the more elaborate crop circles and then get a piece of paper and draw them and try to reproduce them on paper. And you suddenly realise, even on paper, they can take hours to make. And then in your minds, you scale that up to hundreds, sometimes thousands of feet across in the field, and you realise what it is you're dealing with to make some of these. So, yes, some are man-made, but there are some, especially the ones that occur in a very short period of time, that are really hard to explain that way. And geometrically, some of the mathematics are extraordinary. And yet, many of the man-made ones, they just seem more basic. They don't seem so ambitious. And it does feel like you're looking at a, you know, a different phenomenon. Plus, there does tend to be more physical damage in the known man-made ones. So, you know, there's so many criteria uh, which never get talked about in the media. It's easy for them to say, well, look, there's one man making a crop circle. That must be how they're all made. But that's that's just simplistic thinking. And that's like saying if you find a counterfeit coin in your pocket that you should throw all your money away, you know, and that's not how the world works. So we need, I think, to apply that same logic to crop circles as well. I'm glad you brought up the physical damage because I wanted to talk to you about the Ben test. And from what I learned that the hoaxes are the ones where the plants are broken, but the real ones where the plants are bent due to heat. Can you comment on that? So, well, the heat theory is still to some degrees uh, a theory. But there is there, there is some evidence, uh, and I would refer people to the work of the late William Levengood in this regard, uh, that perhaps a very brief heating process may be used to make the crop pliable so that it can be laid flat without any large amount of damage. Um, there have been people that have questioned that, but I think there might be something to it, and that heat probably uh, lies in the microwave spectrum. Now, where that might be coming from in a field is, of course, another whole debate, but but interestingly, there are changes inside the plants, uh, which we get, especially when you get a knuckle on wheat and barley, the nodes, they're often abnormally swollen, they're elongated, there's other changes uh, in the seed heads themselves. Uh, there are even chemical imbalances which have been discovered only beneath crop circles between the nitrates and the nitrogen. And the point of all this, and there's many other effects, is that man-made formations don't seem to reproduce this. And in many of the man-made ones made for TV programs, so, you know, we know they're man-made, there are very obvious white crease marks where the planks of wood that they use, which they attach to string to manually flatten down the plants, it snaps the stems, it bashes them in uh, and does leave a mark. And yet I have to say, I mean, I have seen many crop circles you just can't see any damage. And we have uh, a crop here, which I think you call canola. We call it oilseed rape, very yellow. Um, <clears throat> I mean, if you ever hold a stem uh, of that, right, it's about an inch thick, a bit like celery. You start bending that, it's going to break. You start stepping on it, it crushes. And yet we have found pretty much 90 degree bends and not a mark. 
I mean, you get what's called a bloom on some plants where there's like a silvery gray dusting on the outside of the stem or the leaf as well. And you've only got to touch that with your finger and you can leave a mark. And yet so often, there's not a sign of any physical pressure having been applied. And that's the kind of thing that should be talked about more. But, you know, in the media, of course, they never do. It's just easier just to have a laugh and not talk about the detail. But unless you talk about the detail, you don't realise that the forensics that are involved with crop circles really do matter. Uh, and it's partly for that, as well as other things, that many people just still don't believe that they are all man-made. I know we're going to have to speculate here, but besides the man-made ones, who do you think are making the others? Uh, well, you see, that's the eternal question, isn't it? Um, and here's the only honest answer I can give you, which is I don't know, and nobody knows. Lots of theories. Lots of people are fond of theorizing, and that's fun. That's been one of the, the marvelous things about crop circles is that the questioning, the journey you have to go on to try to see, all right, yes, what could have made this makes you have to filter out what you do and don't believe about the universe around you. So some people will say it's natural energies and we get into the dowsing and everything we've just been talking about and underground water. And then others say, yeah, but some of them look too intelligent. Clearly they're displaying consciousness. There has even been a message in a crop second. We'll come to that maybe shortly. Um, so then you have to say, well, all right, that does denote some level of consciousness. So what is that consciousness? If it isn't man or in any physical way, what is it? And then, of course, the next leap is, well, it must be extraterrestrial or extra dimensional in some way. And, of course, that cannot be ruled out. I mean, there's a big universe out there. We don't know. We don't know what's out there. One of the theories is that it's an acclimatization process, that something is out there and it's not allowed, maybe a bit like Star Trek's prime directive. It's not allowed to interfere too much, but it's just gently letting us know there's something else out there by making these pretty patterns. And then we get interested and then they make them a little bit more elaborate. They evolve the complexity every year. And what we're doing without realizing it is we are getting used to the idea of something else being out there. And then if there is a big grand revelation one day, um, we'll be ready for it. So that's the theory. And I like the theory. There are question marks, though. I mean, so yes, so aerial phenomena, strange glowing lights, that is absolutely a part of this phenomenon. And we can talk more about this. Many people have seen them. I've seen them. Uh, whether they are flying saucers or craft in the conventional sense, we can debate. Um, but certainly, yes, you know, UFO phenomena is linked with it. So, of course, the alien theory is going to be popular. But I should say that others think that there is a psychic connection. Now, I myself was in involved back in the 1990s in a series of experiments where you go into a room, I'm simplifying here, or go to a place where nobody else can speak to you and you don't have phones or anything like that, and you design a crop circle, you choose a shape, you want to appear as a crop circle and sort of meditate on it. And on more occasions than chance really should dictate, those exact shapes have occurred as crop circles somewhere out there in the fields where nobody else knew what shape had been chosen. It's almost as if something else is listening into our thoughts or some have suggested we're projecting our thoughts out there into the fields or you know something far more strange and complex is going on, which also involves our consciousness. So it may be, that there's a blend of things going on here. Yes, there are natural processes which can make simpler patterns, but something else has come along and learned to use that natural mechanism to make more complexity. And it's linked up psychically with us, plus all the electromagnetic energies and so on. So, you know, I know we're always looking for one simple answer, but I have a feeling the ultimate solution will, will lie in some kind of medley of all those ideas. And I think that's why we haven't really been able to answer it yet. We're always looking in one place, whereas I think it's far, far more complex than that. That's really fascinating that you did that experiment where you meditated and visualized the crop circle and then saw it. Do you think what you were seeing was due to accumulation of many people meditating and thinking the same thing, or they came down to individual person's thoughts? That's an excellent question, because there have been some people who have 
claim. They've said to themselves, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have a crop circle like that over there? And they come back an hour or two later, and there it is. It's appeared. And it's like just for them, either they somehow projected it or something gave it to them. Um, I do think groups of people with intent, it does seem to be more reliable. I'm not saying this always works, but it has worked enough times from people that I've been in contact with that I do think it, it should be considered as a possibility. Um, and I think as much as the numbers and a number of psychic experiments, not just with crop circles, but with other things to show this, it's the intent and focused intent that seems to get the best results. If you're not clear what the intention is, if you're not all of one mind, it, it tends to dissipate whatever it is you're focusing. When everybody's very sort of fierce in their intention, it, it tends to be more successful. In my view, far more work like this needs to go on. Uh, we dabbled for a few years and then, you know, life moves on, work and family or whatever gets in the way. but. It would be good, I think, if other people were to pursue this, um, because I do think there's something there that, that we are connected with. And that doesn't rule out all the other theories. It, as I say, it might all be part of some greater whole. You mentioned earlier that you witnessed something while you were out there, whether it was a UFO or what. Can you tell us about that? I can. I mean, uh, on more than one occasion, uh, I have seen strange things in and around crop circles. So the classic that so many people see, and you can find videos of this on YouTube, are these white balls of light. So in reality, it'd be about the size of a football, an, an English football. Uh, and you, you see so many videos of these. Now, we know some of the videos must be genuine because often several people were there when it got filmed, so they all saw it. Um, and that's what I saw back in 1993, so a long time ago now, uh, I was present with two other people at a place called Alton Barnes. Now that's a place in Wiltshire where many crop circles have occurred. Now there was a crop circle in the field below and we were up on the hills looking out across what's called the Vale of Pusey, very beautiful area. And it was nighttime when we saw them. We saw three of these globes and they were like very pale green sort of luminescent and they would just appear over the field and then suddenly have a kind of a wander around and then take off quite quickly and head off in the other direction uh so that was one night then later that week we went down and thought we'd spend the night looking back up the other way so we went to the foot of the field looking back up at the hills where we'd been and uh probably about three in the morning we had this really strange experience of what looked like these very big, dark shapes flickering very, very quickly across the sky. And again, I cannot tell you what they were, but we just couldn't find any explanation. Now, some people have tried to say to me, well, you saw the classic black triangle UFOs. It, it really wasn't like that. It was almost like something which was not quite in our reality, very huge, large across the sky. You could see them going across the sky. And I found it quite eerie at the time. Um, but it, it faded away after a while. And we then learned later that other people had seen these same things. And then there was one other occasion when I was in another crop circle with a friend and we both saw this sudden flash of light very low over the crop circle, maybe just a few feet, like a streak of light, just very quickly flying across it. So what these lights are, you know, is open to speculation. Again, it's probably related to the underground water, the natural energy feels. It's like something dissipates. But there are theories that it's the lights making the circles. Uh, the Dutch researcher Elcho Hasselhoff has produced some properly scientific papers about this, and he believes the lights are actually partly responsible for creating the crop circles, but they can also appear within them once the crop circle has appeared. So, yeah, th this whole phenomena of lights it's been seen by so many people including i might add farmers i've interviewed uh, over the years farmers who've had crop circles and they tend to sound skeptical because they don't want to attract a load of people into their fields but i've had at least three farmers tell me that they saw these balls of light flying over their fields on the occasion when the crop circles uh, occurred so it, it's something which is out there and going on what it is it's another part of this mystery 
and the way these lights move is very uncanny. Some say it's natural, it's like what's called ball lightning, which is a rare but known weather phenomenon, but others say the way they move, it's almost like they know what they're doing. So you're back to that kind of, is it natural? Is it something with a presence and with consciousness? And again, you're always left never being quite sure. After visiting any one of these crop circles, have you ever noticed that something in you changed spiritually or personality-wise? It certainly did after that first week of uh, looking at crop circles. Yeah, there's no question it it opened something up in me. And I've always had that searching quality. I've always been interested in mystery. So there was always that element, but my life was elsewhere at that point. And it yeah, it it drew me to a deeper level and it made me realise there's things going on in the world that actually I really should be looking into far more. Uh, And yeah, it, it did open me up to other belief systems. And once you start researching, you meet all these other people that are out there doing their own research. They are coming up with their own theories and just to exchange with them and hear what they've got to say. And, you know, in the old days, especially, lots of arguments would erupt and it all got a bit silly. And I, and I write about that in my book, The New Heretics. But at the same time, what came out of that was this kind of equation working itself out, the the ideas get thrown back and forth, and the the ones that thrive the best learned to embrace the mystery at the core of this. Didn't mean you didn't look for an answer, but the ones that fought for their ideas and thought they must be right, it usually came off the worst. Uh, And some of them, yeah, really struggled because they couldn't get to that certainty of an answer that they were looking for. The ones that realised, okay, this is nebulous, we're not going to get to that clarity, or not yet, I think were able to be more fluid and then were more open to what was going on. They didn't shut out of their mind things that didn't fit with their theory. Uh, And that, I think, is a mindset that could be applied to many other mystery research avenues. Has any crop circle hoaxers ever come out and said, wow, look at this crop circle. I don't know how they did it. I know we couldn't make this. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, the people that do make them, I mean, they're not bad people. They've just got a a need to create land art. Uh, Mm -hmm. And some of them have seen the balls of light themselves. There are tales, and I can't verify this, but there are tales where they've gone out to make a pattern. And when they get there, it's already appeared. So it, was, it was like something new they were going to do it and did it before they even got there, which is fascinating. Uh, but there have been some. There was one particular crop formation, uh, which is very well known, at a place called Milk Hill in Wiltshire in 2001. And it, it was like a six-armed spiral with 409 circles in it, in, incredibly complex. And one of the guys that, that makes the TV crop circles said he did not see how that could have been made in one night but it did occur on one night, on, we should say, a night of rain and very heavy winds. And yet the next morning inside, there were no muddy footprints on it, you know, no sign of damage. And you wouldn't want to be out there working in those conditions. So, yes, occasionally they will pass comment. On the whole, they tend not to. But some of them uh, are not entirely sceptical themselves. Some have said themselves that they felt that they were guided by some higher presence, now, that to me, that's no less fantastic than saying aliens make them. If aliens are working through them, that to me is just as an extraordinary an idea. Um, uh, and others have said, yeah, they, they're they not sure that they are all man-made. So it's not clear-cut. So even the people that you'd think would be 100% sceptical aren't always. And I think anybody with an ounce of honesty who's been involved in the crop circle world, either in the non-believer camp or the believer camp, if we must use those terms, uh, knows that there is just some strange, unknowable quality at the core of it, where you can never 100% pin it down. There's always something that feels like it's one step ahead of you. And that's why we're here today, still talking about these after all these decades of very complex shapes. And I might add centuries. 
because a lot of people don't realise that records of crop circles go back a very, very long way. Um, the earliest good record that we have is 1678, and uh, there's a famous picture of a devil making a circle in the field. Um, and when you read the account that goes with that, it describes everything that we would today call a crop circle, including light phenomena in the sky. And it says in the report, the sky was all of a flame. Well, we would probably call that light phenomena today. So this is something that's been going on for a long time. There's photographs from the 1930s onwards clearly showing this. And yet there has been an evolution and the, the complexity has really grown up over the last three or four decades, but especially since 1990, which, of course, the sceptics get very loud about, but others say no this is a natural progression or we're now ready for a leap in what's going on something's trying to speak to us and we were then ready to have more complexity but occasionally if you look back through the old records and uh, there's several hundred historical accounts of crop circles they're not always just circles and rings there's reports of squares and other shapes as well so it is something which has been going on for a very long time I've seen a video of someone deciphering a crop circle on YouTube, I believe. Do you know yourself how to decipher them or tell us what messages they're appear to be giving us? I mean, you know, when we say decipher, I mean, that's obviously quite a subjective term. There are people who very rightly look at the crop circles and they put up these articles saying, well, I think it means this or that, and it represents this planet or this ancient diagram. And they may be right, but I'm always left thinking, yeah, but it also looks like that, that, and that as well. And it's almost like what they call it, like a Rorschach test. It's almost like you get from them what you most need within yourself. And it tells you more about the person making the judgment, I think, than it does anything else. So... Yeah, I mean, people have tried to decode the crop circles in, in all manner of ways and interpret them and look for old symbols that they look like uh, and so on. Um, I think from that, you can you can get interesting things, but I'm just not sure that you can ever be definitive about it with a couple of exceptions. And the exceptions are the astronomical crop circles. So we have had some that have clearly shown star patterns, recognized patterns, usually showing dates and times that would come up in the future. And interestingly, when they did, often unusual astronomical things would happen that you couldn't have predicted. So that's that's clearly something you can interpret. Uh, and there's been a couple where there's been an element, uh, well, one of them very definitely of message. And the very famous one, it's still controversial, but as yet unexplained, is one which occurred in 2002, which showed kind of like a classic alien, you know, with the bulbous head holding a disc of a binary code. And, I mean, this thing was made of lines which scanned across, getting wider, getting thinner. An incredible piece of work. And when you just blurred the image slightly, there was this very three-dimensional figure of an alien. And, of course, because it looks like the classic alien, we all laugh and we all scoff because we're all trained to do that, which is a very clever way of keeping a public conversation down, of course, because the more you ridicule something, should you see an alien, and thousands of people every year claim they do, you know, they get made fun of. So it encourages people to stay quiet. So people immediately laughed as soon as they saw it. But anybody that knew about crop circles said, by God, that actually is an amazing piece of work. I mean, the genius of it, that you can blur it and it looks three-dimensional is phenomenal. But the biggest genius was in the disc, which was rendered in a code, which many people watching will know, called ASCII. Well, ASCII can generate text on a computer. And so it, it was actually a message encoded into this wheel it was holding, uh, which had this kind of portentous tone to it, beginning, beware the bearers of false gifts and their broken promises and, and so on. And it was like a sort of a, a warning, but it wasn't a known quote. Um, and to this day, nobody has ever claimed it. Nobody's ever reproduced that formation. And there's never been another message in words in a crop circle, or not yet, anyway, since. So that was a bit of a one-off, but it's still, I think, quite an extraordinary thing, wherever it came from. Was that circle built overnight? As far as we know. I mean, it, it was in an area 
uh, which, you know, didn't have a lot of people around or flying over it. As far as we know, it, it arrived overnight, but it was suddenly found uh, next to some transmission towers, which, by the way, is another interesting thing we found over the years, that you sometimes get crop circles near transmission towers. Now, is that a coincidence? Is that meaningful? Is it something to do with the energy coming off the transmission tower? We don't know, but that is another little recurring trait that we've noticed. My first thought would be if an extra-dimensional being or an extraterrestrial were leaving us a message, you would think it would be the simplest one, but maybe not. Well, I suppose you could argue, just taking this as a theory, and that, that's all it can be as a theory, that that's how they have been doing it, and that the earlier crop circles were simpler. And, you know, we, we it did enough. It got us interested. It drew us in. And then by the time we got to, like, the encoded message, we, we were then ready for it. And it wasn't so shocking. Had they started with that, like, 30 years before, the world might have reacted with a kind of fear. And I think maybe that's the cleverness of this, is that it's just very slowly, slowly taking us on this journey. Now, it's a theory. Maybe that's not what's going on at all. Everything's entirely random. But... Um, you know, it's possible that they've been feeding us more information than we know, or they're not allowed to give us any more. Maybe the one with the alien in the message was rogue. <laughs> you know, maybe that, that was a different circle maker going in against all the rules. I mean, you know, this is mad speculation, I know, but this is all you're left with at the end of the day. So, yeah, and we can't always assume either that all the crop circles are aimed at us. I mean, that one with the message definitely did seem to be there for us to decode but others may not be some believe they are acupuncture points for the earth that they're being created to balance the earth's natural energies and they just happen to look nice for us but they're not there for us which is, i find it an interesting thought others have suggested it's just cosmic graffiti you know doesn't mean anything it's just something having a laugh thinking oh that'd be a nice pattern and yet others you're not so sure and the astronomical ones and some with you know really complex mathematical data in them which seem to tell mathematical stories i mean they are fascinating i mean the late michael glickman no longer with us sadly uh, for instance did a lot of work looking at the geometry of crop circles and how they would move from using sevenfold geometry ninefold eventually 13fold came that actually if you put it all together there was also a mathematical lesson going on there and if you look at the very complex geometry it's all woven into that which most people wouldn't see with their eye so you have to do a bit of work with some of them um but even when you do i mean yeah then what you do with that knowledge i don't know but maybe we're only part way through this and one day it'll, it'll all make sense we'll suddenly go oh of course but at the moment I, I don't think that's where we are at and i mean i think also what's happened over the years is that we've kind of moved more now into a stamp collecting phase as we call it so 25 30 years ago there was a lot of very active research and i was one of them everyone was measuring every crop second in great detail taking the soil samples the plant samples doing all of this and then as the years went by and you know we got so far with it but then you weren't sure what to make of it that sort of subsided and the people that look at crop circles today and i'm not criticizing them for this it's pretty much where i am these days is you're just looking at them and saying, aren't they nice? <laughs> you know, and you take a photograph or you keep a record of them and you hope that it will make sense one day. But that same intensity of research is not currently there. A few, yes, I'm not saying that's true for everybody, but in, in the way that it was when I got involved, and again, I described this in the New Heretics book because there's a much wider lesson here. Um, it was so intense. It was almost frenzied. There was a need to try to get to the bottom of what was going on in case it was some cosmic message or something vital that we might miss. Uh, um, yeah, that created a lot of strong feelings in people, whereas now I think we tend to be more easy with it. Oh, look, crop circles. And maybe that's fine. Maybe that, again, is part of the equation. that We've just got comfortable with them. Um, whether that means it will suddenly do something completely unexpected one day or suddenly just completely stop, uh, which would still be unexpected, I think. Uh, I don't know. But it may be that it's still, at the moment, a phenomenon just happy to do what it does and just looks at us and has a chuckle at how we're dealing with it, you know. Maybe they've already conditioned us to the crop circles and when we're ready for the next step. 
Yeah, well, I think that's true. I mean, so we should acknowledge here that majority of people have been told by the media that it is all man-made and there's nothing to see, which I find sad. Uh, but the majority of people not being rude tend to just go with the easy path anyway. If you spend even like 10 minutes looking at the actual data, you realise that that really can't be the whole story. But that's true of anything, not just crop circles, but people get diverted very easily. So most people will say, oh, I heard it was made by a load of old blokes years ago. And that to them, that is, that's as if that explains everything here today. Um, but you know, of course, it's just not that simplistic at all. It wasn't even back then. Um, but people were, were trained not to think about things too much, which I think the powers that be rather like, because then we don't get in their way and we're not a nuisance to them. But I personally think that to empower ourselves, we should think a lot more about things. What about radiation in the soil or in the plants? Have you seen any of that? Okay, so there were uh, some experiments done some years ago uh, in the 1990s and um, looking for radioactive particles. And uh, there was a chap called Michael Korost was one of the ones that did this. Um, they claimed they'd find that they had found some unusual isotopes in a couple of the crop circles. I don't think it was definitively concluded and some said they didn't have their equipment set right or whatever, but it might be that they were on something interesting, but then it didn't prove to be repeatable. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be, and in a way I'm very glad of this, otherwise I'd probably be dead by now, there doesn't seem to be any kind of strong radioactive presence. Uh, and I, there are people that go into crop circles and they either have tales of a miracle cure inside or they come out feeling really ill, which you could say is the result of the energies or maybe radiation, but it, it's not, it, everybody seems to react differently. I think if it was genuinely radioactive in any harmful sense, uh, I think we would have known about it. I think everybody would have probably had adverse effects. Although it should be noted here, and this is always a problem nobody ever likes to think about. Unless you've tested soil or even plants in that field from previous years, to know what a normal control sample is, how do you know what is anomalous? Because there are patches of ground that have natural radiation, radon gas and that. There are various things that you could detect that might have been in that field anyway, even without the crop circle. And that's the problem. So having samples of the ground before a crop circle appears is very hard because you, you don't generally know exactly where a crop circle is going to happen. So that's one of the issues, and that's why, although there has, as I said, there has been good science done over the years, it, it's hard to do the kind of science that some people would like there to be because of that repeatability issue. Although I should say, even in the world of official science, they struggle with repeatability. Nobody likes to talk about that, but they do. But it, it's certainly true in the crop circle world because getting an absolute recognized control reading where you know right this is normal is hard because you know every field can differ from another field and maybe there was another crop circle only three years before that left the track you, you don't really ever know for certain so you can find i think interesting things but whether that would ever be enough to convince a hard scientist that it was meaningful uh, i think is tricky and, and that's one of the difficult things. And again, it, it's always nebulous. It's almost like it doesn't want to give you the evidence that you really want to show the world that this is real and we should take it seriously. But there is a part of me that thinks, therefore, well, that's okay then. It clearly doesn't want that. Um, one of the lessons we learned was, you know, we were going around trying to say, right, this is real. You must listen. Here's the evidence. And of course, in the end, the world doesn't listen. But then we found, well, actually, maybe that's not what it's about. Maybe it's only supposed to draw the people in that it needs. And it, it doesn't want the rest of the world. It, it wants the people that are going to go the journey with it and discover interesting things and be open-minded. And that maybe it'll come to a stage later on where it will start giving hard evidence one day. You know, just Again, this is all theorising, but these were things that we realised, OK, maybe we should stop trying to prove it so much to people because we're not here to have arguments or battles anymore uh but it was like that for a little while but i think we kind of progressed to all right look this is what we've learned 
if you want to hear what we learned, we'll share it with you. We'll show you it. Beyond that, it's up to you what you do with it, you know, and you can have your own thoughts. And when I lecture about crop circles today, which I still do, that's how I do it. And I say, this is what I found, and you've got to have your own thoughts on it. Think what you want. Be sceptical, be a believer. I don't really mind. That's up to you. But, you know, I can only explain the journey that I went on uh, and show the things that I've learned over the years. Um, and I think, yeah, that's been a gift, I think, of the crop circles. All right, Andy, I want to switch gears with you and talk about your new book, The New Heretics. Can you tell us a little about it and what did you write about crop circles in it? So the, the years of crop circle research, as we've been discussing, they led me to the realization that knowing the absolute truth of something is very difficult. You can think you've got to a truth, but it's based to some degrees on your own biases and what you've experienced. And knowing that that is the truth is not so easy. But it's funny, we've run into a world now where everybody seems to be convinced they've got the truth and, and they're shouting at the other side who are saying exactly the same thing. And you get this polarization. And I mean, this is something so I've been researching over the years, the history of conspiracy theory, without trying to be too judgmental about it. I'm interested in belief systems, and I learned that through crop circles. I want to understand why people have the beliefs they do. I don't have to agree or disagree with them, but I'm interested to hear it and to share that evidence when I think there's something worth sharing. So in my previous books, especially The Truth Agenda and Conspiracies, I kind of brought these debates together and tried to look at, right, where's the evidence for it? But a really interesting phenomenon that I noticed occurring really over the last five, six years was this very hard polarization, not just in the alternative world, but everywhere. So you've got, you've got this especially, you know, left versus right, Republicans, Democrats. We had here those that wanted to stay in the EU, those who wanted to leave the EU. You've got black versus white, man versus woman, old versus young. Everything's polarised. And it seemed to me we were deliberately being polarised. And there are certain patterns that, that make you think it's almost like we're encouraged to be like this because then we're not as effective. Whereas... The reality of history, when you look back, is that most answers to things lie not at the extreme of the polarity, but somewhere in the middle, the grey area, the nuanced area. And a nuance, of course, is something which has vanished from our lives. You're not encouraged to be nuanced. You're encouraged to be very opinionated and then shout at that person over there. And, you know, especially... Uh, with the events, we'll just say that, uh, of the last two or three years, when people were suddenly being controlled and told they couldn't go places and had to have certain treatments and things like this, um, people who had come through a long history of not believing what authority said, of course, suddenly thought, hang on a minute, why should I believe them now? And certainly there are some conspiracy areas where we know uh, there are debates that should be had. You know, we're not always told the truth about things. That's not new, by the way. Um, some of my earlier books go into the history of this. You can go back to the Roman Empire and find nobody believing authority. So that's always been there. Um, but something sort of flicked a switch and people got very, very aggressive about it. And I'm part of an email group uh, of friends we've been running for years, goes back to the crop circle years, where, you know, we share ideas about alternative matters. And when all the events that have come up in the last few years uh, came up for discussion, we find found some of us getting very, very hot about it and saying, I don't believe this is the truth. The government's lying. I'm not going with this. I'm not having their treatments. I'm not going to do this, that and the other. I'm not going to wear a mask, all of this. And others say, well, hang on a minute. Well, what makes you sure that this can't be real? And it really brought home to me that actually knowing the absolute truth is really hard. Very, very hard. And so I thought, I've got to write about this. And, and out of this, I thought, how can we move forward from this? So instead of just people shouting at each other, how can we actually make headway here? So the book, The New Heretics, was born. And it's there to serve two functions, really. Number one, it's to show people on the outside why people do question orthodoxy, which they do. And they long have, but especially now, because it's not given an accurate report in the mainstream media. 
you're told to basically look very, very darkly on the people that question orthodoxy. They're bad people, they're dangerous people. And yes, look, sometimes they can be, but that's the very small minority. There's the large amount of them, but people just want to have a conversation about something. You know, they feel there's something not right. And there's previous things that have come up about that from 9-11 to the moon landings, you know, you name it. There are people that want to get to discuss some evidence that's not generally discussed in the mainstream. And of course, that's been very much to the fore with recent events. Um, so it was how can we find a way forward with this and still have our opinions? And can we actually define how we reached our opinions? And does that mean we're right or wrong? So that was number one, was to try to show people on the outside, look, this is why we believe what we believe right? We have grounds, there is evidence, you don't have to agree with us, but understand it, don't just condemn it, which is what is definitely being encouraged at the moment. But then the other side of it was that yes, yeah, so for those of us within the alternative world, which I use in a kind of a because I don't know how else to describe it. How do we approach these ideas? And it's no good us just shouting at the mainstream and shaking our fists saying they're wrong, because then that just enables you to be dismissed as extremists. Uh, which, of course, we are most of, mostly, even when we don't deserve that. But it's easy to fall into the trap of doing that. And because you feel your voice isn't being heard, um, you, you do, you can react with anger at that and despair at what you see going on around you. And, yeah, but we live in a world of algorithms which will take away people's opinions now without any proper judgment of that and there is a suppression of certain information and it's all heading in the direction of censorship but we're already there and yeah things vanish off the internet you say the wrong thing you're deplatformed and sometimes you can understand a justification but other times you can't and it's now being used as a very lazy way of removing people from public view but the new heretics tries to explain to those that haven't even realized yet, and shockingly, some haven't, that this is going on. Here's how it's operating, and this isn't a good way forward. And then tries to find some ways forward where we can define truth, where we can learn what it is that's motivating what we believe and how we can come to a clearer idea of all living together, even if we don't all agree, but equally saying, but here is some of the evidence that should be discussed. And here's the big one. Just saying to somebody, you must not believe that and you should not have that thought does not make that belief or that thought go away. And all it does is drive it underground and it then comes out as extremism because people feel they're not heard. So they shout ever louder and do more extreme things to be heard. And that in the end just doesn't create a decent world. And thus we wind up in the world of polarization we're in. So it, it addresses all of this. And if anybody on the outside doesn't understand how we got to be here, this book will tell you. But it, it's very fair. It doesn't try to judge anybody's opinions in there without me saying whether I think it's right or wrong. But it doesn't mean it has no opinion. And it does stand up for freedom of expression, which is massively under threat. And that's ultimately the message. You have to have freedom of expression, because if you don't, uh, we really are on the road to a dystopian future. It sounds like to me that you're saying social media is the primary cause of this accelerated pace of polarization. Am I right by saying that? I mean, look, social media is a tool. I mean, from the day the first printing press was invented, people were disseminating information that some claimed were fake. And sometimes it was, you know. Um, what social media and the internet's done is just enable information to flow very quickly. And I do sometimes think we should take a bit more responsibility for that. You know, people tend to pass on information very quickly without ever checking it, without ever considering whether it actually might be accurate or not. But, it, you know, you pass it on and it's done and you've done it in a matter of seconds. That's one of the issues. I, I'm not one of those people that thinks social media is a bad thing. And this is one of the things the mainstream, I think, really is sort of building to is that, you know, they don't like social media and they, they blame all the ills of the world on it. But social media, like anything else, is a tool. You can use it for good. You can use it for bad. And, yeah, you've got to take some responsibility for what gets put out there. But at the moment, the demonization of it um, is not helpful. It's going to be there. Just censoring it, just suppressing it when people express views that don't happen to sit with what the authorities want you to be talking about, that's no solution. 
And as we're already seeing, they're just creating new platforms anyway, where they go to, and they never then hear the mainstream view. And you get into the echo chamber phenomenon, that they're just talking to other people that already believe what they believe, but then that becomes ever harder in its thinking. That then becomes harder to then transmit that to anybody on the outside. And it, it, it hasn't solved anything. Just by pushing something into the shadows, to me, is, is the most foolish thing possible. If somebody has a viewpoint, they should be allowed, as long as they're not advocating hate or killing anybody, which you can't have in a civilised society, you can't. But if they're just saying, look, I've got ideas that I really feel I need to discuss, they should be allowed to put it on the table and we all shine the light on it and we'll see and the truth will out. You know, if there's no evidence at all to support it, that will soon become clear. But sometimes there are things that should be debated, and the book goes through several of these subjects one by one, uh, and some of them we don't even want to mention here, or we'll get zapped and taken offline. But it's, again, it's not about telling people what to believe. It's about really understanding why people question certain things. And you find that actually it's not just conspiracy thinkers that are going down this route. There's quite a lot of other people who have equal concerns that this evidence is not being debated, but they dare not say it. Otherwise, that they get zapped by the algorithms as well. And they get branded mad conspiracy theorists. And then, you know, they'll be tainted. So that's the problem. So we're doing things through fear uh, and that that's no solution but that can also affect the truth world itself and as i say i learned all these lessons really in the crop circle years uh you know we went through the same shape of things who should be allowed to say this who shouldn't you know who speaks for the crop circles and that's true for various subjects now who speaks for this theory or that mystery research and you'll always get one side saying you need to shut up because you're discrediting it with your weird views and they're saying hang on a minute i've got a right to my weird views and and finding a balance between that is it's very tricky but it can be done and, you know, I put forward the lessons in the book that, that I learned from the crop circle world of learning to come to the centre with stuff. Doesn't mean you don't have a view. Doesn't mean you don't fight for what you believe in. But it's really worth just putting yourself into the mindset briefly of those that oppose you, those that think something different to you, just to see what it might feel like before you then decide to fight your corner. And that's really worthwhile because it can actually create that other big missing point of modern life, compassion and empathy, which we've all forgotten about. And it then helps you to get a grasp of the people that you're dealing with and the people that you're opposing. Because if you don't understand them and have any empathy for why they disagree with you, you're not going to get anywhere. And you're back to this just shouting at each other over this vast chasm. And of course, I think the powers that be love that. It's classic divide and rule. You know, we're not effective I give some examples in the book of various areas where various truth movements did get dissolved or became ineffective through infighting when they didn't need to do that. They should have focused on the things they absolutely could agree on. Um, so you, we need to be careful because I do think that this process of polarization does get used to dissolve the effectiveness of those that do feel that we should be having very important debates. So, so that's the new heretics. It, it's a way of showing the world that there are people here. Uh, who do not agree with everything we're told in the mainstream, but they're not bad people. Yes, there are extremists mm. here and there, but that does not speak for the majority of them. And if you understand why they believe what they believe, you'll get somewhere. And there are ways forward with that. And ditto, the way we in the alternative world see the mainstream, we shouldn't over-demonise it, because that, that's not a solution either. We've got to understand that sometimes it might have a good intention, even if we don't like the way they're doing it. So there, yeah, it, it, we're in a world where we're encouraged to be divided, and that, that can never be good. Is your new book, The New Heretics, a standalone book, or does it build upon and expand on your previous books, like The Truth, Agenda, and Conspiracies? It's certainly been born of what I've learned from those earlier books, but you don't need to read the earlier books. It's self-contained, uh, and I wrote that. I was very conscious of that, writing it. That, yeah, great. If you want to go back and read those earlier books, especially Conspiracies, which is sort of its companion piece that gives the history of this way of thinking, great. 
and I encourage people to, but you don't need to. The book, you know, it gives you enough. It's about where are we now? Uh, what's the mindset now? How do we go forward here without, yeah, entering this totalitarian state where certain views are just no longer tolerated? Um, so, yeah, no, you can pick it up and read it and you, you're going to get enough to know exactly where it's coming from. If you want to read the earlier books, fantastic. And I advise that people do, but it's not necessary to do that. And uh, yeah, it, it, ultimately, the New Heretics is a tool to help people. And so often in, you know, our world of questioning things, uh, we don't have many allies out there. This was actually published by a mainstream publisher. So, yes, they're on the alternative side, but they've been excellent. They've been very brave. Watkins Publishing is published by. They put this out, and it's, as far as I'm aware, the only mainstream publication that dares to say, actually, can we just talk about this? Uh, and they've been fantastic to do that because I don't see that happening anywhere else. Everywhere else is just just trying to pretend this information and this kind of thinking doesn't exist. Uh, but I have done it in a way that it's not confrontational. That's exactly what I'm trying to avoid. Uh, you know, there are ways we can discuss very difficult, controversial things without having to fall into anger, basically. How many books have you written and can we find them all on Amazon or do we need to go to your website for that? Yeah, so, I mean, over the year, I think I've, I'm losing count, but I think this is my 15th book. Wow. Um, and some of them are these books that I've just mentioned. Uh, the Truth Agenda was kind of the, the, the big breakthrough one. But before that, I'd written several books on crop circles. Uh, including one about the psychic experiments that we did. Now, some of them are out of print. Some you will find easily enough on Amazon. Uh, if you go to my website, truthagenda.org, there is a page which lists all my publications, and some of them are history. Another book I'm well-known for, which seems a lot strange to some people, is The History of Christmas. Um, because that's, uh, I, I'm very interested, again, in belief systems, folklore, uh, especially here in England, you know, there's folklore everywhere, of course. And that, that's, that's been really useful for people because there's way more to Christmas than people think. Some say, oh, it's just a silly festival, we should get rid of it. And you, when you look at what it represents and where it's come from and the fact that it's been banned even here in England sometimes and we've had to fight to get Christmas back, you realise it has a subversive quality to it that we absolutely need in our lives. So that's another book. So I do straightforward history as well and yeah, to me, it's part of the same thing. It's saying, can we just look a little bit deeper at why this is the way it is? Um, so there's that. And I have some history books that I've written years ago about the uh, the area that I live in down here in uh, Sussex in England. The Sussex history is a whole other interesting thing. So, yeah, I mean, if anybody goes to the website, just look at my books page. You, you'll see all the previous books. And it does give links. And you can find many of them on Amazon, the ones out to print even, you can usually get from a collector somewhere. But uh, but a lot of the other ones are still fully available and uh, you'll find them easily enough, not just on Amazon, but, uh, you know, any retailer worth its salt, you'll find the books there. It's interesting that you mentioned Christmas. Many years ago, I read an article somewhere and it may have been even an excerpt from your book, but it said that Santa Claus's clothes became red due to coca-cola before that it was all you know leather looking is there any truth to that well you didn't read that in my book because mm -hmm. i make clear that's actually not true mm -hmm. so there is this there's this sort of myth there's an urban myth that's gone round that coca-cola invented the the red and white father christmas uh, and so okay here's the truth they certainly popularised that image of him with their poster campaigns, especially in the early 20th century, but they didn't invent it. So red and white Santas go back before that. Now, he often in the early years is in green, sometimes other colours, and yeah, the red and white begins to take over uh, as Coca-Cola makes that the, the standard view, but they certainly didn't invent it. You can prove that, uh, though they might not wish to hear this, but they didn't. 
Um, and yet even that's fascinating because the red and white, some people think that it's to do with the old shamanic practice of uh, imbibing the, 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 the famous Altfly ag agaric mushroom which the shamans used to do and it used to give them incredible visions and uh, this is quite controversial to some but one way that some tribes do this especially near the north pole which is where father christmas is supposed to live of course is by drinking reindeer urine yum yum wow. and apparently if you do this after they've been eating the fly agaric it, it's a very good way for we can process it better if you just eat the fly agaric you're probably going to be quite ill um but by doing it that way apparently you have these incredible visions and some think that then the shaman would imagine they were flying through the sky with reindeer and you've also got the practice of the shaman climbing up the central pole of the yurt uh, up onto the top of the building, which is like Santa going up and down the chimney, which is a thing they used to do, um, especially in the wintertime. So, yeah, uh, listen, the Christian message at Christmas is there as well, and the book doesn't deny that at all. That's all part of the same thing. But you do have some of the pre-Christian beliefs in there, and there's always been a winter festival celebrating light in the darkness for as long as, as we can see. And it's just merged, and it's become several different things over the years. And all of it's meaningful, and anybody can believe what they want to believe about it. It's a bit like the crop circles from that point of view. People argue about the meaning of Christmas, and that's crazy to me. It means everything. It means what you want it to mean, and it's all valid. And it's all ultimately a time of the year where you put normality away and you, A, decide to break your routine, which is very healthy, and B, be nice to each other, mm -hmm. which, again, is the opposite of polarisation. And that's no bad thing. So, yeah, if anybody wants to look that up, you'll find my book, Christmas, um, on Amazon and other places. But, it, but don't think that that's some kind of weird aberration to me. That fits with everything else that I do. Because again, it's something that kind of gets dismissed. You look at it, you go, wow, this is a fantastic festival. And actually, you can really reevaluate it. And we're all trained to be cynical. And you think, you know what, I'm really going to go for Christmas this year. When you look at just how far it's come and how we've had to struggle to keep that festival alive. So so, yeah, a whole other area. Maybe we'll come back at Christmas time and do more detail on that. Yeah, Because it's very unseasonal at the moment, no doubt. I'm glad you said that because I'm running out of time. But I would really like to have you back in December and, and, and do a whole, another show on that. Definitely. Absolutely. I think I could do a mini shows on you because when we were talking about the hinges... I mean, I really would like to go even into hinges, but I had to stay focused on crop circles because I'm sure you have a lot of information on those as well. For sure. Well, Andy, before I finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? I think, I mean, you look around you in the world, and there's a lot of stuff going on at the moment. You've got the Ukrainian situation and all of this, and people worry. Um, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned, but I think ultimately we have to retain a note of optimism. So, yeah, people are fighting for truth at the moment. Uh, conversations are being suppressed and all of this, and that is very serious and important. But we should not lose our humanity as we fight that. And that's something else the new heretics addresses is that, look, keep your compassion, fight for what you believe in. Don't lose that spark of humanity, because that's the minute that, that they drive that out of you. It's like they have won. Don't do that. Right. Keep your compassion, keep your sense of humor, even when things are difficult and believe that we will eventually get through this. Because the day you believe that the dark forces are winning and it's no point even trying to fight them, well, they have won and we've given them victory on a plate. And my advice is don't do that. Um, there's lots of things in the world we don't understand. There's mysteries like crop circles, UFOs. There are conspiracies going on, as there always have been throughout history, and you can go a little bit mad in trying to sort of make some kind of sense of all of this. But at the end of the day, just stand back very slightly from it and just say, but actually, you know, this is all the equation. I use that term a lot, the equation working itself out. And one day... I'd like to believe that we will. And the difficulty is there's just all part of what you have to go through to get to enlightenment. And uh, one day maybe we'll be a slightly better civilization. But what we're going through now, I suppose, has to be gone through. So just, just hold tight, keep going, stay optimistic, 
keep smiling and do what you can do. And something else the New Heretics has a long list of towards the end is things you can do, right, to make a difference and never think that you can't. There's lots of things that can be done and they do make a difference. So there we are. Good luck, everybody. Thank you for that message, Andy. And thank you again for being my guest. Been a pleasure. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.